Kuzu Zangbo, you're listening to Bhutan Dialogues, a platform to discuss ideas and issues in development. Bhutan Dialogues is a joint initiative of the Lodin Foundation and the United Nations in Bhutan, held every second Thursday of the month in Tempo. I'm Karma Pinso, the host for the conversations, and our guest for today is Ms. Sunam Peldon, the founder of Code for Bhutan and Bhutan Plus, a tech entrepreneur, to discuss transforming Bhutan into a digital nation. This dialogue has three parts. Mr. Gerald Daly, the resident coordinator of the United Nations in Bhutan, will introduce the session, followed by my conversation with the guest. The session ends with a question and answer with the online audience. The question I have is how we are able to leverage technology for education, job creation, good governance, effective, timely, and efficient delivery of services to our people. These technologies excite me as they present immense opportunities for the future. His Majesty the King. Kuzuzambola, welcome to your UN House and to Bhutan Dialogues. As the world struggles through this COVID battle, I wish to commend the Royal Government of Bhutan in tirelessly focusing on both the immediate responses to this pandemic and also the longer-term recovery measures. Government's decision to continue working on the 21st century economic roadmap personifies leadership in action. Our topic today is transforming Bhutan into a digital nation. In just a single generation, The digital world has remade nearly every aspect of modern culture, transforming the way we work, learn, socialize. Today's conversation is in store, is digital Bhutan in the 21st century. Our speaker today is Sonam Peldon, a technology entrepreneur and founder of Code for Bhutan and Bhutan Plus, who aims to be the leading source of technology in Bhutan by investing, developing, and fostering a community of professionals. Sonam was previously with The Economist magazine. Forbes magazine named her one of the 30 most prominent and promising technology entrepreneurs. She is a member of the National Task Force drafting Bhutan's 21st century economic roadmap. Our host, Dr. Karma Fonso, is, as we all know, the founder of Loden Foundation and the Deputy Chairperson of the Task Force drafting Bhutan's 21st Century Economic Roadmap. My closing. Please drop your questions in the chat box. We will combine all the questions and the speaker, I hope, will be able to answer them as best she can. Please allow me to end with a quote from the Secretary General. We must consider the type of world that we want the next generation to live in. We must work together so that the digital space that they inherit is safe, fair, and inclusive. Tashi Dele. So, Sonam, welcome to Bhutan Dialogues. Thank you for having me. Um, I think digital technology is probably going to be the most outstanding mark of the 21st century. Um, that 
the way we think, the way we do our work, the way we live our life, the way we socialize, everything has been impacted by digital revolution. And uh, who would have imagined actually 50 years ago that two of us will be sitting here in Bhutan in a room and having a conversation <laughs> which um, many people around the world can take part in, listen to in real time. So this is what digital revolution has done to us uh, or for us. The, we are swamped by digital information. We are animated by digital tools. There's so much happening through social media platforms. And this whole world, it really sort of perplexes me. It confuses me. And I think a lot of the people in the audience, especially among the young uh, population here, would also know, not know what to make of it. What does this digital revolution mean to us? And here we have you. You are a... a a cutting-edge tech entrepreneur, um, and in a traditional Bhutanese fashion, I may reveal your age. You are only 31, and already, as Jerry mentioned earlier, um, named by Forbes as one of the 30 entrepreneurs below 30. Um, you are in the thick of it when you talk about digital revolution. So I want to really ask you later about what this whole revolution means to us. But before we delve into that, can you tell us how you got to be where you are in the thick of this digital technology? Sure, I'll try. I'll try my best. Um, so I was raised in Thimphu. I was born here, I grew up here, and as far as I can remember, I've always been a very studious child, and I've always done well in school, and I loved studying. Mm. And I think that innately stems from the environment that I grew up in. Mm. So growing up, there was a huge emphasis on education at home, but not in a way that was stifling or overbearing. Mm. My parents, especially my mom, would always emphasize the importance of understanding the process of learning mm. uh, and falling in love with the process of learning. Mm. And I think growing up as well, my brother, my big brother, um, was and to this day is one of the smartest and the hardest working mm. people I know. Mm. So I always wanted to become more like him. Mm. And when I was 16, I had the opportunity to go to the United World College because at the time I topped the whole Bhutan mm. class mm. 10 examinations and I got a two-year full scholarship to the UWC in USA. And um, to say that the United World College was a life-changing experience for mm -hmm. me would be a huge understatement. Mm -hmm. Because over there, I think I learned two things that still are huge influences in my life. The first one is mm -hmm. the fact that the world is not mm -hmm. as big and scary as growing up in Timpu makes it seem. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is that being smart is actually pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And after two years of doing the International Baccalaureate, I got a full scholarship again to go to Brown University. And at the time, I don't know, uh, I thought that I wanted to become a medical doctor. And not just any kind of medical doctor, I wanted to become a neurosurgeon. Mm. But very quickly in my freshman year, I realized that I was more drawn to the cognitive aspect of neuroscience rather than the physiology and the molecular side of it. And I think it was mostly from my interest of trying to understand human behavior and human motivation. And then I took one step further from that. So instead of just focusing on why people do the things they do, I also wanted to understand why organizations do the things they do. Mm. And uh, going again a step further, why countries do the things they do. So I think that pulled me towards economics as well. And being the overachiever that I was back then, um, I didn't pick one over the other. 
And the great thing about Bring at Brown was that we had this thing called the open curriculum, and you could customize your own concentration. So I ended up graduating with a degree in neuroeconomics. And at the time, I think looking back, I was quite crazy because on average, a student would take about four classes a semester, but I was adamant that I had to take like five or six mm-hmm. and then audit another one. Mm-hmm. But I think that craziness did serve me well in a way because right after uh, graduation, I got a job at The Economist. Mm-hmm. And ironically, it had nothing to do with economics or neuroscience. Mm-hmm. I joined the finance editorial team. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to be using the word life-changing a lot, but only mm-hmm. because it's true. I think my two years of The Economist was life-changing for me. Mm. Number one, because I had this amazing supervisor who not only encouraged me to ask questions, and I would be in rooms with personalities like Alan Greenspan, Christine Mm. Lagarde, and Clay Christensen, Mm. and he would ask me to lead the conversation Mm. or ask questions. And I think over there I really came out of my shell Mm. and really understood how it was or what you had to do to become a professional mm. in the in, in that t- in, at the time I was working in New York, um, and my, it was my supervisor as well who encouraged me to go to Oxford University. He told me to apply, mm. and it didn't take much effort on his part because growing up I was also a huge Harry Potter fan, and in my head I thought, oh Hogwarts, the closest thing to Hogwarts is Oxford University, mm. so I have to apply there. So it was a no-brainer for me to go there. But I ended, and then in 2013 I ended up getting a. Uh, MBA from the Said Business School. Mm. And you've been there, Dr. Mm. Parma. You yes. know yes. when you get there, there's something in the air. Mm. And I'm, I'm not even, I don't even know if I have the right words to describe it, but just being in a room of very smart people and being included in the conversation mm. and having access to a thousand years of knowledge, I thought that was, again, life-changing for mm. me. Um, and it was at Oxford that, number one, I met my future partners and co-founders for what would eventually become my first technology startup. But it was also there where I understood the importance and the need for me to make that transition mm-hmm. from being in finance or in economics and move mm-hmm. into, um, into the technology world. Mm-hmm. We had this course called Global Opportunities and Threats. And over there, they talked about three main threats that the 21st century would face. The first one was climate change. The second one was technology disruption, especially brought about by automation and AI. Mm. And then the third one was the aging population. And in all three of those themes, the consensus was that the solution would be technology itself. Mm. Mm. And so I thought I wanted to be part of it, but I couldn't be... uh, I wouldn't be taken seriously if I myself wasn't a practitioner. Mm. So from there, I got inspired to just study and learn as much as I could mm. about it, mm. not only in terms of like learning how to program, but also actually understanding how does that tech ecosystem work? Mm. What does it take to become a, uh, to lead a tech startup mm. or to deploy mm. tech platforms and apps to mm. uh, consumers at large? So that's essentially how... In a nutshell, I know I talked mm. a lot, but in a nutshell, how mm. I got to, after m- multiple transitions to technology. Yeah, well, that's a very fascinating, diverse background you have. The only thing I, that I might say is, perhaps Cambridge is closer to Hogwarts than Oxford, because the train to Hogwarts doesn't leave from King's Cross. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. Um, we could have another debate on Bhutan dialogues about that, but sure. But, but then, Sonam, uh, going back to your life story... Mm. Um, you have started these uh, tech ventures outside of Bhutan. And then uh, some years ago, you decided to come back to Bhutan. I yes. met you, I think, about five years ago or so. Yes. Um, 
and here you're right now known for Code for Bhutan. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us what brought back, uh, brought you back to Bhutan generally and how is the Code for Bhutan going? What is it about? Sure. So it's funny you mentioned that, or I think perhaps it's lovely that you mentioned that um, people know me for Code for Bhutan mm-hmm. because I sp- literally spend like maybe 5% of my working mm-hmm hours and working time on Code for Bhutan, I, it started more as a happy accident. And I think it was about two years ago, or rather two and a half years ago, when I was uh, inspired, number one, by His Majesty's vision of making sure that, you know, number one, we're mm. not, we become a startup nation versus mm. a left-behind nation, and then mm. number two, we leverage technology to make sure that we overcome our preconceived restrictions and limitations mm. around mm. Bhutan is small, Bhutan is landlocked, you know, Bhutan has always mm. been uh, one of the, is still a developing country. So all of these restrictions, I thought, tech would check, check, check the box, Mm. And so that was my real impetus to come Mm. back. Mm. Um, But when I came back, I came here uh, with an idea in mind, and I wanted to hire people. But unfortunately, I felt like the two things that were missing in the Bhutanese ecosystem at the time was talent and optimism. Mm. I'll speak more about the optimism (laughs) later, but the the impetus for uh, Code for Bhutan was basically this. There was no... There was a lack of talent, and mm. even though I had an idea, I could, I probably couldn't deploy it with, um, by having a team with mm. me. So I thought I'll just post on my Facebook page saying I am willing to teach anybody who wants to learn how to code. Mm. Mm. And uh, in my head, I thought you know five or ten people would respond, mm. and then from there I could sit around, uh, sit in my office or a coffee shop, and then teach people how to program. But then in two weeks, I got over two thousand inquiries about mm. it. My inbox was flooded, my messenger Mm. was flooded, and I thought there's a real opportunity here, Mm. not just in terms of me finding talent for my team, but there's a real hunger, Mm. a real thirst for technology education and programming in particular. And so I thought, okay, let's not... Let's, let's not sit around and let this opportunity go away. Let's actually build an organization, mm. although that might be a little mm. bit overdramatic for me to say because it's just literally a one-woman organization right now. Mm. So it, it was me mobilizing the, force, uh, mobilizing the resources that I had at, dis- at my mm. own disposal. So, for instance, I, would, I asked two of my friends and colleagues from uh, the Singapore team to come and teach here as well. And at the same time, it was like me asking people to give me a space to teach. So it really was me bootstrapping and mm. teaching. And so to answer your question about what Code for Bhutan is, it's essentially a community mm. or a platform. Mm. We're trying to bring people together who are aspiring programmers, aspiring, mm. aspiring coders. Mm. Um, mm. And I remember in the beginning, I approached multiple offices, multiple ministries and departments, and asked them if they would be willing to help me out. Because the vision that I have for Code for Bhutan is a lot larger than this. It's just not me doing a one-off, one-month mm. course and then saying, goodbye, everybody, you are on your own. That's definitely not it. I have a bigger vision of wanting to make this something that's year-long, something where people can learn multiple mm. uh, programming languages and also kind of, uh, kind of develop new technology and business models themselves as well. But unfortunately at the time, nobody wanted to help me out. Mm. 
And I'm a very impatient person, so I didn't have the time to wait for this one Tasho in this one office to make up his mind and think whether or not he wanted to help me out with coding. I wanted to do everything that I could with my own capacity. And so I had 2,000 people apply, but I could only take 100 at the time because it was physically not possible for me to teach 2,000 people at a time. And so... What's happening right now is we had a couple of iterations, a couple of cohorts since that first started, um, and then we had the one in March as well, mm-hmm. which unfortunately had to be cancelled because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But then a few weeks ago, I remembered I work in technology, so I should probably take this <laughs> class online. Yes. And so right now we're in the middle of a course. Mm-hmm. Um, I have 120 students, and we teach them web development with mm-hmm. more focus on UI, UX, so user mm-hmm. experience and user interface. And also we're, we're going on... And I'm thinking we should do like JavaScript and Python mm-hmm. moving on. Mm-hmm. So, but I really do it by listening and uh, assessing the students' progress. It's not something where I just drill down with mm-hmm. lectures. It's something very hands-on. Mm-hmm. I believe that you learn best when you are actually creating rather than yeah. cons- consuming. Mm-hmm. So I li- really listen to what they're trying to, s- what they're saying, how their progress is. And so, so far, so good. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's. Like I said, it's something that I spend the least amount of time on, but I will uh, 100% say without a doubt, gives me immense satisfaction, immense benefit. Mm. I'm so proud of all of the students who are there because you can see just the level of talent mm. and enthusiasm that we have and, in and this country. And what is the squad? Is it the second or the third cohort you're having? This is the third. Third, yes. And how many have you um, taught, including this third cohort? Uh, so yeah. I try to take about 100 okay. every time, but if this one goes well, honestly, mm. and if I can get a few, of, few mm. more of my friends to volunteer their time and be mentors, I think we can really scale this out because mm. with technology, mm. that's the beauty of it. You don't have to be restricted by limitations mm. that an uh, in-person class yeah. would have. So mm. that's the yeah. idea. But then, um, so I want to come back to your entrepreneurial side. Sure. Uh, you're a tech entrepreneur and you just said that you're an impatient one. At Very impatient, yes. Um, and then you're, you're here dealing with two, uh, two forms of ecosystems. One the entrepreneurial ecosystem, the ease of doing business. Mm. This second, the IT infrastructure, mm-hmm. the digital infra- uh, mm-hmm. ecosystem. Both in Bhutan are probably not on the level that you would wish it to be. And you probably must be facing quite a lot of difficulties and frustrations going mm-hmm. to different offices. Like you just said, mm-hmm. now you don't want a single dasher in an office mm-hmm. to be the main factor in your projects. Mm-hmm. So as you look forward, to scale up your project. What kind of challenges do you see? And what kind of solutions can you find for those challenges? So, I mean, that's a really big question, right? So Mm. we have to unpack it in Mm. a couple of ways. I think what you're essentially asking is the challenges of doing business in Bhutan, but more Mm. from a technological standpoint Mm. as well. Mm. I think Honestly, I would say the tech infrastructure is the least of my worries. I don't mm-hmm. lose sleep thinking that the bandwidth is slow mm-hmm. or that mm-hmm. the package is very expensive. I would be happy if it was faster and cheaper, obviously, but that's the least of my worries right now. Okay. I think ultimately when we think of um, enabling us uh, this ecosystem and this mm-hmm. environment of uh, tech advancements, we have to think about everything else. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we're, we're at the National Task Force and we have deliberations on this endlessly. And I think one of the main things that we have to enable for us to even get to the conversation of tech is this idea, This first of all, it's the systemic infrastructure we have mm. in place. So, of course, we would love to have like a third carrier for 
mm. internet so that you know it eases the bandwidth or makes it faster. Um, but those are things that I think I am a little bit too in- inexperienced to speak about. But there are also systemic infrastructure challenges in terms of, I always speak about how I believe in the unfettered movement of the four mm. freedoms. That is good services, people, mm. and money. And we don't have that in Bhutan. Mm. Uh, I, I know our geodra- geographical disposition puts us mm. at a disadvantage when mm. it comes to moving things logistically. But even if you think about you know, bringing in an expert who, is, uh, who might be an expert in a technology and might come and teach people here, there's a lot of hassle when it comes mm. to just bringing people in mm. and getting that help. So the unfettered movement of people or talent is not there. Even with Code for Bhutan, I mean, I'm doing it online right now, but if I were to bring my colleagues from Malaysia or Singapore, unless I get, unless I get uh, another pass for them, it is a little bit of a hassle. Mm. And I always say this, that in Bhutan, we have this mentality where it's the start that stops most people. And I feel like to kickstart or push the front door open is the hardest part. Mm. And it's because we have all of these systemic challenges within us. And then if you talk about like how Bhutan can be part of a more globally digitized world, right now we can't have that conversation until our banks mm. and our central banks um, really improve their act and then have us be aligned and connected with the rest mm. of the world's payment systems. Mm. Because right now just it's easier for me, it's easy for me to send money from like the US to Malaysia, but very, very hard for me to send money yeah. from Malaysia mm. to Bhutan. Mm. So if un, until and unless we address some of these systemic infrastructure problems, I don't think we can get to a tech conversation. Mm. And then more culturally as well, I think we have to change our mindset. I've talked about this many, many mm-hmm. times breathlessly about how we have to we have to encourage a culture of innovation and right now we everywhere you go everybody pays homage to a digital bhutan but how many of us are actually walking the talk mm. you you have innovators coming in entrepreneurs coming in with ideas with new innovation First of all, there's no funding, there's no help, and even if the entrepreneur miraculously makes it him or herself, they snatch the idea. And then how will that one person mm-hmm. compete with an a entire ministry or a state-owned enterprise? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, we say we mm-hmm. want to be trendsetters, but if we want to be trendsetters, let's be real trendsetters and mm-hmm. walk the straight mm-hmm. and narrow. There is no point being trendsetters in hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like right now there is this mindset that it's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. We don't have intellectual property rights laws. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's we, and then every time I would complain about this, people wouldn't necessarily respond with, let's think of solutions. Mm. People respond with, this is how things always work in Bhutan. And that is not something that we Mm. should continue the discourse with. We have to have a more proactive mindset. We have to think, how can we change the system? Because whatever got Mm. us here is definitely Mm. not going to take us where we need to go. Mm. I mean, that is the uh, paradoxical part, isn't it? That you have the code for Bhutan to which so many young people respond so enthusiastically, mm. positively. And then you again have the Bhutanese system, the political, mm. cultural system that is almost unshakable Correct. and uh, seems to hinder what you want to do. So um, how do you undo that? Do you have some specific examples that mm. the state, the institutions, the private sector ha- can do to unlock some of this? Uh, obstructions? Uh, so I wish there was a magic wand solution that would make <laughs> everything uh, better. But I think 
it goes back to our culture, mm-hmm. our education system, and it has. We have to build a culture which is a little bit more inclusive. Mm-hmm. So Jerry was talking earlier about how we need to build technology that's more inclusive. I feel like over here the discourse is. We, we always talk about high-end rather than inclus- mm. inclusive, or we talk about complexity rather than reliability. So we have to change that paradigm. Mm. And I'm not sure if I'm the right person to talk about this because it, it ultimately goes back to human psychology. So perhaps you have to have a psychologist mm. come mm. here and mm. talk okay, to Okay, well, I'll, <laughs> I'll take you to where and you are the right person to talk about. Yeah, no, but then, so. let, but then let me... Um, I think there are ways that we can mm. get there. And in a way, compared to like five, six years mm. ago, things have improved. Mm. There are efforts being made around sandboxing. There mm. are efforts that are made towards um, encouraging or putting entrepreneurs mm. on the spotlight. I think that's great. Mm. But ultimately, you, entrepreneurs and startups need to be given the right to grow into big firms in their own right. Mm. And that is somehow restricted. We start something, we celebrate, we clap about it, but then nothing happens five, six years down the line. There has to be this long-term thinking of how what we have right now when we're encouraging entrepreneurs, it's just not a one-time thing. And it's not about like me versus you. If you encourage the entire ecosystem and if you have more chances where people can put their ideas forward without being afraid, I think there's also a lot more chances for us to come up with a big unicorn idea from Bhutan, because I think that is 100% possible. So, I mean, what you are, of course, arguing for is a totally liberal free market approach, uh, whereas I think there are trade-offs, and I think the state institutions have to also think of the downsides of such neoliberal approach. But I want to come back to your tech expertise. So... Um, the country, uh, Bhutan, mm. has been trying to digitize for some years now. During the first government's uh, tenure, we had the uh, Chip Hendrick Pell, about two billion new terms worth project with the aim to make about a quarter of the population uh, digitally literate. Then in the second government's term, again, we had the e-governance master plan developed. Then today we are talking about the... Um, digital Drugul flagship mm, program. Mm, mm. So a lot of resources being pumped in. Yeah. But then when we go to the state institutions particularly, yeah. a lot of the work is still heavily driven by paperwork. Mm, it's mm-hmm. far from being digital. Yeah. As a tech entrepreneur, where do you see the loopholes? What are some practical things that we can really fix to turn Bhutan into what uh, today's uh, topic is suggesting, a digital country? That's a big one. Because you must be, as a tech person, yes, seeing I, I, I very practical that. problems that can be easily sort of plug-holed. Yes, yes. So we already covered some of the systemic mm. issues. Let's leave that aside yes. for now because that's a worm that a can of worms that we don't want to open again. Like a few years ago, I'll give you yes, this example. A yes. few years ago, when you came to uh, meet me in my office, yes. you were talking about this balloon service to oh, provide yes, internet. Yes, yes. So uh, some practical things like that that could really turn Bhutan into a digital country. Okay, so, like I said... What happened to that idea, anyway? Oh, it never took off, literally. Like, it was just stuck somewhere. Mm. Um, the, the idea that uh, Karma, Dr. Karma was talking about is this, uh, the Google mm. Loon project, where mm. we would deploy 
um, hot air balloons all like in six points around Thimphu, and then it would actually um, enable internet connectivity to the whole valley. Mm. But yeah, never happened. And I mean, there are a lot of like mm. environmental concerns as well. But mm. at the time, I thought it was a great idea. I mean, mm. I still think it's a mm. great idea. So, so what uh, are the great ideas do you have to solve Bhutan's digital sure. problems? So, but I, I don't think it's a matter of idea. Mm. Again, I will go back to mindset. Mm. Um, and I will talk about how we have this very top-down approach. Mm. We think that us sitting on this ivory tower building apps and deploying it into the market and then suddenly everyone is expected to use it, that's mm. not how it's going to work. Mm. With technology, what you have to do is you have to listen to what the mm. people say. Mm. So the, the, what I notice uh, in Bhutan is that when we talk about technology, number one, we think that any app or any website is just going to miraculously solve your problem. That's never going to happen. Mm. In fact, what digital platforms will do is just exasperate or accelerate problems mm. that are already pre-existing in your analog predecessors. Mm. So that's never going to happen. Mm. Just slapping an app doesn't mean that you're a tech company now. So you have to think about the fundamentals. And you, by you sitting up top and then saying that you want to build this app and then deploy it to people and then mandate them to mm. use it, that's never going to happen. Mm. You have to listen to what the customer is saying. Mm. That's why I tell uh, I'm, a, I'm a very consumer-centric mm. uh, developer. So what that means is essentially... When you're building a product, it doesn't have to be a 100% finished product from day one. Mm. And then you send it out. But I, I feel like that's what we do here in Bhutan. We build something. We say it's 100% complete. We have the opening ceremony. Then we deploy it. And then we hope people will use it. Mm. When in fact, in, in startups, you have to follow the Scrum Lean model where you listen to what the customer says. You deploy a beta, a beta uh, mm. idea or a platform or mm. tool first. You see what and how the customer is using it, and then you fix it based on the customer's lifestyle or the, their user experience and not the other way around. I think it's Seth Godin who always says that you have to find, you have instead of finding consumers for your products, you have to find products for your consumers, mm. and that's not what we're doing. Mm. We're just telling people to use it just based mm. on what we think is mm. correct. Mm. And also, when it comes to digital drukyul, I think maybe we have different def definitions of what it means to build a digital nation, but mm. digital drukyul right now doesn't sound like building a digital nation. It sounds like building a digital government system, mm. because people like you and I are not allowed to participate in it. Mm. The moment we do, again, like I said, some SOE will um, come mm. and mm. want to do it themselves. Yeah. SOE is meaning state-owned enterprises. Yes, or, mm. or a ministry or whoever. Mm. So I think over there we have that disconnect of what it mm. means to be a, a digital nation. And mm. ultimately I think it stems down to decentralizing. And right now we have a very centralized way of building mm. digital drukyul technology has to be uh, decentralized. A lot of people have to participate in building it so that ultimately it serves them and not us mm. serving the technology. So um, I'm not sure if I answered your question. Mm. But well, <laughs> uh, yes, I, think it, yes. I think it really comes down to, I'm not going to talk mm. about the actual technicalities of how mm. they're building digital drukil mm. because I don't know mm. how it works. But I'm talking about just from a user experience and a user-friendly mm. um, or user-friendly perspective, that's not happening right now. Mm. Mm. So um, you have uh, shared this with me even before, that you are consumer-centric, yes. and that you would go with the interests of the consumers and the clients to yes. develop an app or uh, a product. But then what we see in the digital, um, especially in digital marketing and digital companies is 
you do develop products that are very enticing, that are very attractive. You basically you know, lure the cons- consumers to your products and services. Yes, yes. Um, so when you do that, then of course you are also playing with the mindset of the consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are shaping people's interest in life, their tastes, um, the amount of time they spend you know, on things, various things. So um, when you have such sort of um, impact of digital technology on the people, um, don't you think that that's how, uh, to some extent, digital uh, designers are playing God. You are really sort of controlling people's lives in a very insidious manner. Mm-hmm. And that has severe consequences for people's lives. Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself at all? Do you think of that when you design and think of your apps and think of, sort of attracting consumers? Uh, yes. I mean, yes, I do. Mm. I think as a developer, your main priority is always how can you entice the customer, mm. right? And I think, Dr. Kama, you're referring more to our, I'm guessing, the addiction to social media. Yes, um, that too. But the, I'm also thinking about, for instance, how, say, we would create um, apps to uh, get people's uh, personal identity. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then these identities can be used. People can be tracked. People the states can use that for purpose of surveillance. Mm. Some states are using it even to manipulate Correct. elections. So uh, now, there is a whole dark side to this digital revolution. Mm-hmm. How do you see that? Okay, so let me answer that question in two parts. Mm. I think the first part, it's important for us to understand what sort of technology mm. we're dealing with or consuming. Mm. So um, I think it was in... Near uh, Ayal's book Hooked, where he mm. talks about social media and modern technology, basically uh, they they basically tug at three basic human emotions: the need mm. to be loved, adored, and under loved, uh, connected, and understood. Mm. And I think essentially that's why we people are automatically drawn to it. Mm. But not saying that that I'm not saying that you know, whether that's necessarily right or wrong. But I think to answer that question, you have to think about the business model of these big corporations Mm. that we are now calling Mm. as the tech unicorns of the Mm. world. Mm. Um, If you really, really think about it, the way the likes of Google, Facebook, Netflix, Mm. all of them work is they're actually capitalizing on your attention. So Mm. they have every motive and incentive to make their products more Mm. enticing for Mm. you to get addicted Mm. to them, for lack of a better word. Mm. So... I think until and unless these big corporations, number one, Mm. recognize that they're doing something that has more drawbacks than benefits, Mm. which Mm. I don't think they'll ever get to, or they change their business model in Mm. a way that serves the people more than it serves the corporations, we have to take, uh, the individual Mm. has to take uh, his or her agency as Mm. the first and the foremost thing that Mm. will tackle the situation. Mm. Um, Because I don't think over here we can necessarily talk about um, we talk about restricting people of, mm. to use one mm. to use these apps. Uh, we talked about being consumer centric, and with consumer centricity also comes 
con consumer right and consumer mm. free will. Mm. So if you and I sit on sit over here and say people can use this app and not this mm. app, who are we to judge that? Mm. Right? It becomes almost close to an Orwellian society where you mm. have like an institute mm. or a committee mm. of righteousness, mm. and then you tell people what is right mm. or wrong. Um, and I think if you do that, you'll have a lot of righteous to a, anger. To a large extent, that's what the tech unicorns are doing, right? They are feeding what they want to feed people. Correct. And not so, so that's what I'm trying to get. Mm. Like, you know, their business model mm. is mm. made to capitalize on mm. your attention. Mm. So the more ignorant a person is, mm. the more vulnerable a person is, mm. he or she is more valuable to the tech unicorns because they are essentially monetizing off of your attention. Mm. Uh, Reed Hastings, the co-founder of uh, Netflix, was asked, who is the biggest competitor of Netflix? Mm. He didn't name another streaming app or a mm. company. He said the biggest competitor of Netflix Education. is sleep. <laughs> because you are, you, if a person is asleep, how will he yeah. or she watch mm. Netflix, mm. right? So I think f it's important mm. for consumers to educate ourselves in mm. terms of what sort of uh, mm. what sort of products we are using. Mm. Similar to how we say, you know, it's important to understand mm. where your food is coming from. So because mm. you consume yeah. it, it's important for us to understand what sort of technology we're using, yeah. how it works, where yeah. are we in their business model? Mm. If we're not paying money to Facebook or Google, there's a very high chance that we are actually the products. Mm. And then now coming to your question about data, what was it, the privacy? Mm. And how do we protect people mm. from governments or malicious hackers? I, I honestly don't know if <laughs> about, about that. But I think there are three ways to look at it. A lot of people are concerned about data security. Mm. They say that Facebook is bad, it's looking into my life and listening to my conversations. Facebook is not listening to your conversations. Honestly, I, I am of the belief that, you know, uh, a little bit, some uh, a reasonable amount of personal information is rarely compromising. But mm. when it comes to data security, you have to be mindful. You have to choose what you trade off. Because mm. people say Facebook is bad and I... I prioritize my privacy, but human behavior or consumer behavior is suggesting otherwise. It seems that people love Facebook, and in fact, they love mm. Facebook, which is free. And then the second thing that we have to talk about in that aspect is data accessibility. Mm. So it, Digital Drukul and every other government that's looking at digitizing um, the nation, they always talk about digital accessibility, having an aggregate mm. centralized system where people, where all the data is there. If you look at Estonia, they have mm. that once-only policy where you don't ever have to type in your name or your ID card number right. anymore, which is great. But then data accessibility can't just stay there mm. like a relic. It has to have data analytics associated with it. And who are the people that's actually analyzing the data? What are we using for? Those are the things that our policymakers have to think about. Mm. But the thing that plagues me is neither data security or data accessibility. It's data integrity. Mm. It's who has access to mm. my data. If it's at MOIC or wherever it may be right now, who has actually has access not just to the data, but also the ability to change mm. it. Because I don't think it, re it really is compromising for somebody to know what your blood type is. Mm. But if somebody has the ability to go and change that, then your next visit yes. to the hospital mm. will be lethal. Mm. So I think in terms of mm. <laughs> cybersecurity mm. and hacking, it's a larger conversation mm. that honestly I'm a little bit more liberal towards just because mm. I feel like um, there are drawbacks and benefits in every aspect of the world. I believe that there are more mm. benefits than, than drawbacks in the realm of technology. Mm. But we, have, we can place certain insurance systems and certain policies mm. 
uh, in order to protect especially our most mm. vulnerable mm. communities. Yeah, what I think is important is um, people, yes. uh, and particularly the people who are uh, in our audience, they ought to know about the risk, the, um, the dark sides or the challenges that one has when you embrace digital technology. Now, let me bring you back to Bhutan. Mm. Um, so you mentioned how it's often the ignorant, the um, poorly educated consumers that are being monetized by the big tech Correct. companies. Correct. So if that were the case, and then looking at our own sort of situation, now you have started Code for Bhutan. Many years ago, I tried to bring somebody who could also outsource his applications company here in Bhutan. He mm -hmm. didn't find the, the right standard of maths for young people to take up uh, his uh, programming. Anyway, what we have here is we are a fledgling nation in terms of uh, digital development. Of course, uh, the whole world is facing this digital uh, revolution equally, but I think we are perhaps one step behind some other countries. Mm -hmm. And then we have these two big neighbors who are doing amazingly well in, a way, in terms of, uh, sort of IT uh, innovation and companies and so forth. So should our focus be more on educating the consumers, being responsible, educated, mindful consumers of the technological tools and information that other people produce and not be so much on developing tech as in sort of an uh, opportunity for economic development or innovation ourselves. Basically, I'm asking you whether, given our situation, we should focus more on tech as an enabler, make people become digital in how they do business, in how they run their offices. But maybe tech doesn't have such a big scope in Bhutan to be an industry that will contribute significantly to the economy. I mean, we are talking about AI and big data and uh, space uh, technology and so forth, but mind you, we also have uh, some really basic problems yet to be solved. We have grinding poverty for about 8% of the population and we have to talk about space technology. I mean, our focus really shouldn't be there. Similarly, Maybe we should promote big heart more than big data at the moment. Emotional intelligence over artificial intelligence. What do you think? Uh, okay, so let me... Because you're more into the tech industry side, right? Yes, as a promoter. Yes. yes. But then... So that's the thing. Yeah. I don't see them as being one or the other. Okay. I think you cannot be mindful consumers without being creators. I talked about this earlier where I said you can't... You learn better when you are mm. constructing something or creating something rather than consuming it. Mm. And I fully agree, we have to have um, educated consumers. People mm. have to understand what platforms they are using, how it works, and that's essentially the essence of Code for Bhutan as well, mm. because I tell people mm. it's not simply enough for you to be working on your laptops and your phones every day. You have to understand what enables these uh, technology mm. and these products to work. So I, I don't think it's one or the other. Mm. And with regard to your question about like whether we should, uh, we should be creators, I do. Mm. But then again, I also have very delusional levels of optimism. <laughs> so perhaps it, I could be challenged. But I, so I, I'm, I'm making this analogy from the Industrial Revolution. Mm. The AI revolution or the tech revolution that we are going to be facing is nothing different from that. 
Mm. Professor Harari talks about it, and he's my intellectual hero. So mm. he always talks about how the farmer in 18, like the early 1800s in India who said he had no time to think about railroads or the Industrial Revolution in the UK found himself being colonized 20 mm. years ago. And I'm not saying the same thing is going to happen to Bhutan with the likes of India and China, but we will be exploited in different ways and perhaps in more uh, detrimental ways. And that's why I don't think that we should be we should be sitting on the sidelines and waiting for someone else to create the product and then giving it to us. Another issue with that one is, for instance, you, we think that we can copy-paste the system. People talk about, oh, let's bring Estonia, mm -hmm. E-Estonia here. That's not going to work. Let's bring Silicon Valley here. That's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Because we have to ultimately understand culture. And technology can never be above culture. Mm -hmm. So if we say that we're just going to take the, uh, the products that are being built by all of mm -hmm. these foreign um, developers, yeah. what we will be doing is we will be uh, inculcating and living their culture. Mm. So, for instance, it's very important for us to understand how it works for the Bhutanese context. People always ask me, my first startup, Service Hero, why don't you bring it to Bhutan? It's mm. such a great idea. But I don't think it, it's mm. necessarily mm. Uh, me just bringing the app here. That's the mm. simplest thing. We have to fix certain mm. uh, certain. Uh, offline mm. and operational mm. issues that technology will never be able to fix. Mm. And the same along the same lines, that's why I emphasize the importance mm. of Code for Bhutan and the importance of us having local Bhutanese developers is because ultimately only we will understand what Bhutanese values are mm. and how we can make it work for the Bhutanese consumer. Mm. So I think that's that making that distinction mm. is important. Mm. And lately like there's all this talk about everybody wants to do coding, even the people who didn't want mm. to support me when I went to ask for funding, <laughs> they want to do coding, which is great. Mm. But we have to understand what are we doing it for? Are we doing it because we also believe in the fact that t speaking the language of the future is going to enable us and take us forward? Or are we just checking some political boxes, mm. right? And also the Ministry of Education is saying that they want to make people, uh, students from class mm. one, two, three, learn coding, which is great. But I think coding cannot be taken in silos. Mm. Ultimately, you will not be coding for computers. Mm. You will be coding for human beings. Mm. So when you're teaching about coding, you have to teach them about what is Bhutanese values? Mm. How does it fit within the context of a Bhutanese lifestyle? Mm. What does it mean for a user experience and user interface? How can we make it so that it enables mm. us rather than us being used by them? Yeah. So. I, I know it, this is super, super like supremely optimistic, mm. but I think we, there is a chance for us to be part of the global discourse. Mm. Um, and also there is a chance for us to create products that work for us rather than waiting and depending on everybody else to bring it for us. Mm. So you're a tech optimist. I am a general. tech optimist. Yeah. And let me, let but, me, can mm. I say something on that? Whenever people say that you know, technology is going to be bad or I'm a techno-pessimist, mm. Just remember, technology itself has no agency. Mm. It is the choices we make that will determine mm. what technology mm. will do. So when policymakers are mm. unwilling to have the debate around technology and how it will influence our life, it is not... A, Techno-pessimism is actually a symptom of political pessimism. Mm. It shows your inability to have these discourses because maybe you're afraid to, uh, you're afraid to know what the answer will be. So I don't think anybody is overtly mm. techno-pessimist because, mm. I, I, I mean, there is, it's, it lies in plain sight. Mm. The technology will bring us good, mm. but we have to be able to wield it to our benefit, mm. not the other way around. Yeah. Well, I'm fully with you in seeing technology as a neutral tool. Mm. But then uh, when we look at the general technological world, 
detect unicorns, yes. they're mostly playing with people's weaknesses. True. And they're sort of basically turning that into a negative tool rather than a neutral tool. Okay. Um, you say you're, you're a Not always optimist. negative, though. Yeah. I see. Yes, of course, not always. All of the, yeah, from all not the always. Unicorns. But when you look at the general development of technology, no, digital technology mm. in particular, how we see exponential growth yes. every year. Um, some people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawkins have actually been worried that we'll reach a point where men become slaves of machines, mm. that computers will outsmart us, that point mm. of singularity. Okay. Are you a pessimist or an optimist in that sense? Do you think? I'm still an optimist, but. Um, do you watch? Do you are you a fan of fan, uh, science fiction, Dr. Karma? Not really. No. Okay, because I think a lot of mm. our uh, opinions about mm. this thing, what singularity mm. means, or what, or more precisely, more a lot of our fears of what singularity mm. means, is being driven by this science fiction culture. Mm. Uh, movies are no, key. But we Mo- also movies always talk about like robots coming in and taking no, over. But you have alpha. Alpha Go that has beaten the world's uh, the best of Go champion, yes, and you yes. have the Deep Blue, which has defeated uh, uh, the best chess yes. champion. And then Watson. So yeah, so uh, what? So at some point, if we keep sort of uh, allowing this uh, law of acceleration, accelerating mm-hmm. returns to go on, mm-hmm. who knows that artificial intelligence may take over? No, they won't. <laughs> I mean, I don't believe they will, mm. um, and this is my own personal belief. So mm. I think that. Um, I think that there's not going to be one single point in the future of mankind where mm-hmm. the robots will take over and then it's the end of the world. I don't believe in that mm-hmm. dystopian society. No, maybe it will not be the end no. of the world, but no, no, it will no, be no, a robot-controlled world. No, it won't be. Mm-hmm. I, uh, what I believe in more mm-hmm. is several stages of disruption or mm-hmm. several revolutions. Mm-hmm. So say in 2025, there might be a big one where mm-hmm. robot takes over 25% of all the jobs that are existing right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Then in 2035, something else happened. Mm-hmm. So I think it will be a continuous process. Mm-hmm. So our job as human beings and um, ultimately mm-hmm. <laughs> protectors of humankind and mankind, what we have to do is we have to always think ahead of the curve and educate ourselves, reskill mm. ourselves. Do you think everybody does that? No, I don't. Yeah. And so if there's a very powerful leader who mm. decides not to do that mm. and goes with the artificial intelligence, what would happen? Uh, no, so wait, let me get there. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think uh, that's necessarily going to happen where it's all doom and gloom. Mm. What I think will happen is more where you know there's a series of revolutions and a series of disruptions mm. where we will have to cope and combat with. Mm. And that's why it's so important to talk about education and the ability to reskill ourselves. Mm. There's this huge divide in Bhutan between like school life and real life, mm. which I don't believe in. I still take classes and courses every single day, and I believe there has to be continuous parallel learning throughout your mm-hmm. life. And more importantly than just regurgitating facts and information, you have to know the, the real, uh, you have to know how to learn. Mm-hmm. People say knowledge is power, but I believe learning is power. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you, we're, we're talking about like AIs taking over, I don't think that we'll come to a time where they will, mm-hmm. number one, because ultimately humans are the ones who are coding it. So mm-hmm. we have the power. They say the future is inevitable, but I think you, we still have the power to influence it. As, mm. Especially in Bhutan, we definitely do. <laughs> we definitely do. So we have to talk, have these conversations right now. And in mm. the next election, if our politicians don't have the answer to 
what, how will you combat AI, then perhaps we shouldn't vote for them. Mm. And I don't think it will ever come to a point mm. where AI will just take over the world and then we'll have nothing to do. We will constantly have to reskill and upskill ourselves. What I will be more worried about in the realm of job, uh, robots taking over our jobs mm. is not the 18-year-old or the 20 or the 30-year-old, because I think millennials and Gen Z, and I know I'm giving myself too much credit, will ultimately be able to adapt and mm. adjust to the changes. I'm more worried about the 50-year-old and the 60-year-old mm. who's been in one position mm. his whole life, mm. and then suddenly a robot comes and makes him obsolete. Mm. And over there, we will have to talk about not just reskilling him, but also finding him new meaning for mm. life. Mm. So I think this is what we need to start talking about now, because we know for a fact that it's going to happen. How we deal with it, how we overcome it, that's an entirely different mm. conversation. Mm. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you about uh, how digitizing Bhutan would um, uh, fare with uh, the unemployment problem we have in the country. But uh, I think in the interest of time, let me ask you this question, uh, which um, I feel very strongly about. Okay. And that is, okay, let's forget about the uh, big sort of unknown singularity problems in the future, but what about the problems that digitization is causing right now? Mm. Um, the kind of screen addiction a lot of our teenagers and people in 20s and 30s are going through, mm. s the sleep deprivation that young people go through, the stress levels of these people. As a technocrat, what would be your advice on how people should go about using digital tools responsibly to minimize these negative impacts? So first of all, I don't think this is a new conversation. Mm. This debate has happened since the dawn of time. Mm. When the Industrial Revolution came about, people opposed it. When, the electri mm. when people started using electricity, they said it's the devil's work. Mm. And more closely to home, um, in the 1990s, we didn't have television because mm. we were afraid mm. of television addiction, mm. about uh, people getting, our people getting influenced by other cultures. So the... So in a way, the drug hasn't changed. The medium of how we consume it has changed. And I'll go back to saying that ultimately it's about self-awareness. It's mm. about being well-educated. And that's why, again, going back to education mm. over and over again, because you have to understand what you are consuming. Because you cannot talk about technology as having um, an overcompassing and overbearing influence over you. Um, ultimately, if, you, if you're talking about whether or not we can re-engineer people's behaviors so that they don't uh, look at screens too often, mm. there are already apps that are available mm. which will zap you, or not zap you, but like vibrate or turn off your phone mm. if you go over a certain exceeded time period. Um, but look over here, the, the solution to technology problems mm. is not less technology, it's always more technology. And ultimately, it comes. We have to address the the question of technology addiction the same way we address alcohol addiction and sugar mm. addiction. Mm. And yet, we don't have a committee of mm. sugar control sandboxing, right? So we, in the same, along the same ways, I think we have to number one, give credit where credit is due. We sometimes, mm. especially in Bhutan, we coddle the consumer. The consumer is a lot more sophisticated than what you make him or her to be. We have to remember that. And he or she should have the agency and the self-control and the self-discipline to be able to judge mm -hmm. and, and use technology to his or her advantage. And if it gets to a point where you are where it is out of control, then you have to deal with that addiction in the same way you would deal alcohol addiction or any other addiction and ask for help because there's no shame in asking for help mm -hmm. with something like that. So. Well, the difference I see, although I mean I buy most of what you're saying, but mm. uh, agricultural <coughs> revolution, industrial revolution happened 
in a long period of time. They evolved gradually. But there was also a lot of opposition during yes, that time. Yes, you can ex- accept that. But digital revolution is happening in such a short period of time, with, at such rapid speed, yeah. and also in such great intensity, yes. that we are, we are not given the time to even learn to be responsible consumers. Yes. So it's technocrats like you who have to really point out what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. I don't think it is up to the technocrats because mm. if you leave it up to the technocrats, they'll tell you, use it, it's great, use it all the time. Don't sleep, watch Netflix. That's what we will tell you. But I think what's important is during... It is important to have that tech clash. It is important to have that push because I'm not sitting here and saying that technology is all rainbows and butterflies. There are drawbacks, but there are benefits as well. And we can make the benefits work for us. And I think it's important for us to have this discussion around well, what, how technology can... Inf- can influence our lives and how it can influence society because ultimately what we have seen over the course of history is that whenever you have these impetus of uh, sudden changes, it always brings about new rules and regulation which are for the good of the people and at the same time it also really puts your priorities as a nation and a culture in check. What are you going to trade off for the screen addiction. So if you, if I ask you, would Dr. Karma, for the next 48 hours, I'm going to take away your phone, your laptop, mm. your internet connectivity. Will you be able to work and carry out your day-to-day dealings? I'll be very happy to actually. <laughs> no, but I'm not saying you, you're not allowed to go and meditate. Yeah. You have to actually deal and do your job at the, the, paper. No, at, the opti- the, at the optimal capacity mm. that anybody else mm. would expect it. So, there, so mm. in a way... We have to make sure that you know it works for us, and it's important mm. for us to have these debates mm. because mm. so that technocrats, dangerous technocrats like myself, will not come and say mm. use technology all the time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very important because if I tell young people that mobile phones have blah 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 features mm. that are going to trap you, mm-hmm. they won't believe me. But if you say mm-hmm. such a thing, mm-hmm. uh, then because you come with that background, you yeah, certainly have but that. But I, d- I don't think it it's a bad thing. Mm. Like people, like I, I know it's the responsibility of the individual, and also if you talk about young children, it's the responsibility of the parents to inculcate discipline and usage of technology. Mm. But if, if like the parents I say, are themselves. yes. But like I say, who are who am I or who mm. are we to tell people that they mm. should use this or use that? Because ultimately what we were doing is, if we were talking about consumer centricity, we're taking that away. And mm. once you take away consumer centricity, you're taking away free will. And then what do we have? Cultivated will? And who are you and I to cultivate mm. certain mm. kinds of rights and wrong in other mm. people? But uh, mind you, most consumers don't have their long-term interests. They don't know about their that long-term interests. That is true. So uh, anyway, my final question to you. Mm. Now you are, as I said right at the beginning, in the thick of it. You are yes. deeply, deeply engaged in technology in this digital world, but at the same time, you manage to keep your clarity, your sanity, your uh, values. Uh, do I? I don't think so. Yeah. So <laughs> my question is, how do you manage to keep on top of things and not be carried away by the distractions, the luring mm. uh, distractions that the digital world, the social media is offering? Okay. So first of all, uh, let me make it clear that I don't keep on top of things. Mm. Um, oftentimes, I'm always trying to, uh, at the risk of sounding like a less okay. admirable workaholic, I'm always trying to catch up. Yeah. But I think it ultimately goes back to understanding what you are using, who you are as a person. I think I'm very, very disciplined, and what will work for me will not work for everybody else. Mm. So I grew up in a household where we talked about discipline being the most important thing, because what you, it is the difference between what you want now versus what you want most. And what I want most is not get addicted to um, 
my phone. But there have been times when I would go down rabbit holes of like Netflix binges, right? Mm. And I think that's okay ultimately so long as you understand what are you consuming, what mm. are you trading off. Um, but I am in no position to tell people that I have it all and I am on top of things because mm. I'm not. So it's a balance. Um, and ultimately, I think for me, technology has been great. Social mm. media has been an amazing tool. I have friends all over the world that I don't feel like there's any distance because mm. I keep in touch with them. And also within the context of marketing and pushing the agenda for Code for Bhutan, I spend zero dollars on marketing because social media is mm. amazing. So I try to look at what benefit it has for me and really double down, triple down on that. Mm. Because ultimately, though, I think the, what, what we have to really differentiate or really talk about is the fact that technology won't be able to de- determine the difference between values and vulnerabilities. And we have to do it on our own. Because if I go down a six-hour Netflix binge, it's my own fault. I will mm. never say, oh, Reed Hastings, this is all your fault. I will mm. never say that. I will always talk about my own self-control. So people have to work on that. So it always goes back to education, self, <laughs> self-awareness, and more, most importantly, discipline. Thank you. So we open to questions. The first question we have is, what is the future for Code for Bhutan? Would there be a private institution in the future imparting tech education? Yes. The the grand vision or dream for Code for Bhutan has always been, like I said earlier, for it to be a year-long thing, for it to be, uh, for it to uh, address various different kinds of technologies and also take in whoever is applying so that it's not limited by just me being the one instructor. But and I know what the vision is for, and I know 100% that I will definitely get there. The bigger question is, how will I get there? Because right now, like I said, it's just me. It's a one-woman show, and it sometimes gets really, really hard when I have to balance everything out with everything else that is happening in my life. So the, the vision is that it will keep on going. Uh, I think I have some really amazing students right now, and I've al- I'm already in discussion with a few of them to be involved in it more full-time as well. So I do see this evolving. And like I said, I'm listening to what the cons- cons- customers and the consumers are saying. So if you want it, I will bring it for you. Uh, the next question we have is, though we may say Bhutan is coping with global digital, still we are far behind. What are bottlenecks and who is responsible to make it move ahead? I think we are all responsible. Um, I, people say that in, for you to be I- able to influence anything, you need either power or money, and I disagree. I think what you need is community mobilization and unity. And that's essentially what I'm also trying to do with Code for Bhutan. I'm mobilizing a community of people who believe in a common goal. So if we bring together enough people, and if enough people believe that the future of Bhutan is in technology, we can get there. Uh, I don't want... Uh, and what was the first part? The first part the was... Bottlenecks. Oh, bottlenecks. Uh, we spoke at length about this. There's like the, the physical infrastructure, the systemic, uh, the systemic problems, the mindset, the cultural problems. But I don't think I should go down that. <laughs> I just spend too much on that anymore. Today we are caught in the vicious cycle of huge national debt from our hydro projects. Why are the foundations in Bhutan not questioning this huge national disaster in waiting? What and how can this forum help with ideas and results to alleviate the disasters of hydropower projects that are unfolding? After all, the success or failure of hydro projects has a huge bearing on national sovereignty. 
So I think the discussion here is um, the, diff the debate between destructive production versus creative production. So far in Bhutan, we have unfortunately been doing the former, where we think that we have natural resources in a plenty and that we can basically make our, our nation and our day-to-day -day lives go about by exploiting, for lack of a better word, our mm -hmm. natural reserve. But I think I'm not able to really, underst uh, to really comment on the, the exact... Uh, uh, the, the mm -hmm. comment on hydro hydropowers in particular because I don't know enough about mm -hmm. it. But I, what I will say is that I see tech to be a really good alternative for it. So rather than spending huge amounts of investment in creating something um, to bring in revenue, I think we could invest in becoming a knowledge-based economy, mm -hmm. really teach our people to really teach our people to address and work with the global market but still have the pleasures of working from home, paying taxes to our local governments. Because with tech, that's what it does. It limits the, it, it breaks the limitations that say a, a project like hydropower will come. We don't have to deal with logistic issues. We don't have to deal with manufacturing uh, limitations. It can be vast and wide and we can be creative. And the more creative we are, the more successful we will become. Mm. Yeah, if I may add on to this, I sure. think, uh, sometimes people have this premature uh, worry of the heavy investments we have made into hydro. Um, on the whole, I think, if you look at Shuka, if you look at Tala, if you look at Kurichu, and now Mangdishu, the returns have been quite good yeah. in that um, just because few projects, few mega projects have failed, I think we shouldn't be so pessimistic. In terms of financial returns, the hydropower projects have so far been good, and mm. we are yet to really see the full yeah. potential. Um, and then I think linking it to yeah. IT, one advantage you have is we can produce all this energy and yes, have the yes, energy intensive uh, industries in the country. So yeah. uh, while it is not at all wise to put all the eggs in one basket, as people often say, and we have done that with hydro in, uh, in the past, but we have already begun to diversify mm. now. But hydro should remain a very important component of the overall economic plans, I suppose. Yes, and the, yes. the debt shouldn't be such a great worry. Yes, correct. And mm. I, I forgot to mention this as well. I'm working on a blo mm. blockchain um, mm. project as well, and that requires mm. huge um, energy consumption. Mm. And the, the number one reason why I thought it would make sense over time is because of our the abundance of energy. Mm. Uh, but I think I know there are certain like there are other operational issues that we need to work on before we actually get there, but I actually see mm. this as, number one, solving the problem of now India is becoming more self-reliant mm. in mm. terms of energy, and also, uh, number two, how do we, how do, the way we can p perhaps have a competitive edge mm. in the global market is if we can actually reduce yes. our electricity, per unit electricity mm. costs, and then enable our technology firms yes. and our data centers, more importantly, mm. um, on top of hydro. Mm. With the sudden shift to e-learning worldwide, how can Bhutanese teachers and schools quickly and effectively respond to the changing needs of our students? Do you foresee a hybrid model of learning where schools will no longer suffice to be the bastions of learning even post-COVID? So, to answer that, we have to look at the way we the the definition of how we understand the traditional system of schooling right now. And it was started hundreds of years ago because mm -hmm. it was a place where you would go to get information, where you would learn facts. 
But right now, with the advent of the internet, mm-hmm. it has to be. We have to change the discourse around education mm-hmm. because information is everywhere. We are flooded mm-hmm. with information, right? So schools have the responsibility to make clarity out of this information. So before it was giving people the information. Now it's teachers teaching students. Mm-hmm. How do you make clarity out of this whole? information overload that we have and i know when we in bhutan when we talk about the future of learning we always we the, the discussion ends with online education but i want to bring to the table this idea of re-education and reskilling continuously throughout your life mm-hmm. and i think that's super important for mm-hmm. our uh, our uh, policymakers and our teachers to think about as well uh, People always thought that school was a place where you would warehouse your children for the day when you went off to work. But COVID has taught us that that's not the case. Parents have to be fully engaged in their child's learning. And more importantly, they have to teach them the, like my mother did in a way, and I'm very, very grateful, the process of understanding and falling in love with this idea of learning. Yeah, Yeah, I think the whole uh, notion of education across the world will change, is bound to change with uh, this digital revolution. And... As uh, you said, I think um, here we often think about school, uh, education in schools versus online education Correct. because of the COVID situation. But what is important is probably to change the whole concept of education. Mm. It's not about teaching or helping young children, uh, not about what children know yes. it's, or what how, they should know, but how Correct. to do it. So the whole focus of education really has to shift. Yeah. And this is not just unique to Bhutan. It's probably I, going to help everyone. I was reading very recently mm. that the whole, the, the main problem with technology, or the re- mm. main problem that people, the main problem that um, will probably arise from technology is because ultimately you have paleolithic minds, mm. medieval institutions, and godlike technology. <laughs> and I think that's true with the education system mm. as well. Like, you know, our kids are learning faster mm. and better than than what is being taught in school and you should adapt and listen to what the the kids are doing because they're keeping up with the godlike technology but our institutions and perhaps our mindsets aren't access availability and affordability should be the focus now and then later talk about bringing technology into any sphere what are your thoughts Uh, I don't think so I disagree with that because I think in uh, earlier when we were talking about the hindrance, I said that the tech infrastructure is the last thing that I worry about because it gets things done. You know, like I said, it would be great if it was more accessible and if it was more affordable, but at this point in time, we will take what we get. And honestly, I'm not, that's not the, thi- that's not the thing that I will be uh, driving for or debating about. What was the second part of that question? Sorry, I get... Um, I didn't hear clearly. Yes, uh, talk about bringing technology into the sphere after um, talking about access availability and affordability. No, you can't wait. It's already ahead of us, right? So we have to keep up. Um, and if we wait till you know everything is perfect, until if we wait till you know we get 100 Mbps at 100 neutrons, that's never going to happen. And I think the real there is real opportunity right now for us to engage in discussion and to lead that towards that goal, but we can't wait for that to take place and then, well, the whole world is moving ahead of us. Uh, I can take the last question. While keeping up with the global forum in tech development is important, at the ground level, Bhutanese, particularly particularly in the remote areas, don't even have access to proper smartphones for e-learning. How can digital 
still Bhutan be inclusive and address the issues that affect locals in their daily lives? Being progressive and talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc. are important, but bridging the technological gap requires more inclusive, local, and human needs. How can we make this kind of information available to the unreached without using high-tech vocabs so that they are well-informed too? Okay. Um, I think that's a great question, but I don't think those, for one conversation to happen, the other one has to stop. They can happen parallelly at the same time. And I'll go back to the example of Service Hero and how people were asking me, why don't you bring Service Hero here? And I was telling them, what problem are you trying to solve, right? Because ultimately, if the problem is, so for those of you who don't know, Service Hero is a services marketplace that connects users with service providers. Um, So if our concern in Bhutan is to get the service provider to do the job, there are many ways to do it. So I was saying maybe perhaps we should look at what the majority of the consumers are doing or using right now. So if it is ultimately to get to to get that result of getting the service provider, we could just have a hotline so that people can call and get that service. So I think there is that, you have to make that distinction about what is that technology for. Now, if we are talking about uh, the remote areas just being educated, I think there are ways, and this is where policymakers and technologists like myself come in, because we have to think about what the consumers are saying and what the mm-hmm. consumers' lifestyles, what the consumer lifestyle is like. And we have to think about various different ways and mediums to get that technology or no, to get that information or service to them. So I don't think, although technology is a great tool to level the playing field for everybody, everybody, we have to recognize that people are at different stages of this playing field. So we have to address them in various different ways. And if it, it means going to this remote area and teaching this uh, teaching this person how to use a tablet or operate a phone system to get the services versus now teaching robotics to a person here, I think we can do that at the same time, but we Mm. cannot, like Mm. I I agree with you 100%, ignore certain Mm. um, parts Mm. of the community and then just Mm. aim for the godlike technology. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, what is also important is maybe such uh, programs to uh, bring literacy, digital literacy to the people in a very inclusive way shouldn't be just purely driven by the state, that Correct. there should be multiple players, including the private sector, uh, catering to the specific needs of the communities. So with that, um, I want to close this session. So Sonam, thank you very much for coming to Bhutan Dialogues and sharing your insight, your enthusiasm with us. Thank you I think for uh, me. you told me and Jerry earlier that uh, the reason you are on the national uh, task force for the economic roadmap is because the roadmap is going to influence your life yes. as you are a young person. And I can now see what kind of future Bhutan is going to have to, uh, to face, to you know, kind of prospects and problems that we will see through the digital revolution and also bright minds like you to cope with it. The final question then. Yes, we yes. offer two books as a token of gratitude from Bhutan <laughs> Dialogues, and you chose these two books. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about these books? Well, because I haven't read them, and they're on my top reading mm. list. But if you give... Uh, earlier, I think the question that Jerry asked me was, what book would you recommend? And I mm. can write you a whole... I, I mm. have a blog that just talks about like book reviews mm. as well. So I've been meaning to read growth, especially after joining the National Task Force, because mm. it talks... Uh, this book talks, and I, I'm a huge fan of Lekhav's Mill, and mm. he talks more about like economies and how growth mm. can be 
uh, influenced or how we can go about mm. looking at growth in different ways, especially mm. for countries and cities moving forward. And this one uh, it has been on my reading list for many, many years. And I love reading biographies, especially I leave, love reading biographies of um, entrepreneurs. Mm. And Phil Knight from Nike has been one mm. of the one of the things that I've been meaning to read. He's a genius when it comes to branding, when it comes to manufacturing. So I chose these two. But then there, if you re- if you really ask me like what what else I would like to read, I'll give you a hundred different books. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Sure. So thank you very much for joining us. And then I normally conclude this session again with a uh, word of wisdom. I think the most apt uh, uh, proverb that I can cite today would be from Shantideva where he says, and I write uh, first read in Tsongkha or Chike, there's nothing whatsoever a bodhisattva won't learn. For there is nothing the wise cannot turn into merit. So I think digital technology is a chance for us to turn it into a tool of merit, mm-hmm. a tool of good work. So with that, thank you very much.